All right, loved ones, we find ourselves in Psalm 53. Back in 2012, I started in the summer uh, to preach uh, one psalm at a time uh, all throughout the book of Psalms. I started in Psalm 1, and uh, now, uh, several years later, we find ourselves in Psalm uh, 53. Psalm 53. I want you to imagine that you... uh, your friend calls you up and they want to take you out for lunch. And so they pull up in front of your house and they've got a new car. And you're so excited to see them, you didn't really check. You know, most guys, they check. They sort of walk around the car, you know, what the make and model, that sort of thing. But you just, you walk, you, you get right into the car, you open the door. You say, wow, you got a new car. And, and you say, well, what kind of car is this? And they say, what do you mean, what kind of car is this? We're like, like what, what manufacturer is is the car. And then they just sort of look at you with this puzzled, almost angry look at you on their face and they say, there is no manufacturer. You think, oh, that's a, that's a little odd. I mean, cars would normally have a manufacturer, but then you just sort of move on. Your friend's got, the, the radio is playing and, and uh, you happen to really like the song that your friend's listening to and, and you're, you're enjoying the melody, the rhythm, the beat, the vibe of the song. You're like, this is a great song. What, what band is this? And again, they give you this weird, like annoyed look and they say, band? There is no band. You're just kind of, you're scratching your head, like, what's going on with my friend? And then then you go out and you have lunch, you have this delicious meal, and as the server comes back and is collecting your plates, you say, oh, that was so delicious. My compliments to the chef. And now the server and your friend both look at you with this look and they say, there is no chef. It's foolish, isn't it? It's foolish to look at beautifully prepared food that tastes amazing and the presentation is beautiful and to assume that it's just there, that no one made it. It's foolish, isn't it, to think, to hear bass and drums and a vocalist and then to say that there is no band. It's foolish to get into a car and say, no, this car, it's just there. No one made it. There is no man. It's foolish, isn't it? That's how Psalm 53 verse 1 begins. It says, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. It's foolish to look at this beautiful creation, to look at the world around us, to look at the cosmos, at the universe, at the stars burning at the farthest edge of the farthest galaxy, and to come to the conclusion that there is no God. Before verse 1, Psalm 53 has some introductory notes. Sharona read these as part of our scripture reading. They're actually part of the original inspired text, so we don't skip over these. It says, to the choir master. This was written for the choir master, the one who was in charge of the choir. It was written for them to prepare to be sung for corporate worship for the people of God. It says that it was written according to the Mahalath. Now, we don't know what Mahalath means per se. We do know that it's a woman's name. Esau had a wife named Mahalath in Genesis 28, verse 9. David's grandson, Rehoboam, he had a wife named Mahalath in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 18. Now, 
so we, we don't know what Mahalath means. Maybe when this psalm was being written, they thought, you know what, Mahalath, that singer in the choir, she has a really beautiful voice. Let's have her sing this, sing this song. Or maybe it was a melody, you know, like Sweet Caroline or something like that. Sing this according to the Mahalath, you know, song. Ba, ba, ba. There was a familiar melody or something. We don't know exactly what that is about. But it, it also says there in the notes that it, it was a maskil of David. That word masculine means understanding. If you look at verse 2, it says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is anyone who understands, anyone who maskles, anyone who has wisdom. That's the same word. So you probably noticed when Sharona was reading this psalm, it didn't really sound like a psalm. It sounded more like it belonged in the book of Proverbs or something. The, the psalms, it's one of the beauties of going through the psalms one at a time is they're not all praise songs. They're not all thanksgiving songs. They're not all prayers. Some of them, just like some of them, just like this, are they aim at teaching us something. It also says that it's of David, that it was originally written by or for or about uh, David. Now, you also might have had some biblical deja vu in hearing Psalm 53, because if you turn over in your Bibles to Psalm 14, you'll see Psalm 14 verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And if you keep reading Psalm 14, you'll notice that Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are almost a carbon copy of one another. The only difference is that in Psalm 14, you see L-O-R-D in all caps, translating Yahweh, where in Psalm 53, you see G-O-D translating Elohim. And so uh, in the second book, the book of Psalms is divided into these separate subsections. In book two of the book of Psalms, the name, Elohim, the name Yahweh hardly appears. It's, it's, it tends to be always uh, Elohim. So that's one difference. You'll also notice that Psalm uh, 14 verse 5 and Psalm 53 verse 5 are completely different. That's the only change. And so we don't really know why this psalm happens to be repeated in this way. Maybe it was like, you know, in our own contemporary world, you know, Chris Tomlin, he'll, he'll go through an old hymnal and he'll read, he'll write a new version of an old song and, and then add a, a new chorus or a new verse. Maybe that's uh, what's, what's been going on here. But it is interesting that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God inspired this psalm to be included in his word Twice. He wants us to hear this message twice. It begins with the word fool in verse 1. The Hebrew word for fool is Nabal. Now, Nabal is, is the word for fool. Now, Nabal is a person in the Bible as well. Remember when David is fleeing from Saul in the wilderness and he's getting hungry and tired and he's, he's, looking, he's looking for a, a place to rest and to get food and nutrition for his men and he asked this person Nabal. He met Nabal's shepherds out in the field. He protected them actually and Nabal refused to show hospitality to David. And then Nabal's wife, Abigail, saved the day. And Abigail herself even said, Nabal, he lives up to his name. This guy is a fool. The interesting thing, again, as we read the Psalms in their order, we, we see here that there's a, 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 little bit of a, a little bit of a theme happening between Psalm 52 and 53 and 54. If you look just at the introductory notes, 
of Psalm 52, you'll see a name there, Doeg the Edomite. And then if you look at Psalm 54, you see another name. You see the Ziphites. So let me show you here on the screen. Psalm 52 mentions Doeg the Edomite. Doeg is an evil character who shows up in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Uh, he, he was the one who snitched uh, to Saul to tell David about his whereabouts and then slaughtered 85 innocent priests who helped support David as he was fleeing from Saul. David wrote a psalm about it, Psalm 52. Down in Psalm 54, the Ziphites in 1 Samuel 26 betrayed David. They also told Saul where David was hiding. David wrote a psalm about it. And right in between these psalms, the first word in verse 1 is the word Nabal. And David's encounter with Nabal happens in between these two stories from 1 Samuel. So as part of the corporate worship of the people of God, it seems that Psalm 52, 53, and 54 kind of worked together. People read them together as, as people reflected on David's life and how David encountered these different enemies, Doeg and Nabal and the Ziphites, and how God came through and rescued David even though there were these evil people. That the people of God in their worship services, they could look back at David's life and then they could look at their own circumstances and say, I have a few Nabals in my life. I've encountered a Doeg every now and again. There are some people in my life that are like the Ziphites. And if God came through for David, I can trust that God will come through for me. And so I sing songs like Psalm 52, 53, and 54. And so here we're going to learn how we should think about fools. What does it mean to be a fool? What, how should we respond when we encounter a Nabal in our own life? Our message is quite simple. The title is The Fool. The first point is this, the heart of a fool. The second point is the hope of the people of God. So we're going to start with the heart of the fool. Verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is no one who does good. So what does the heart of a fool does? It begins by denying God's existence. Denying God's existence. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. Now, don't mistake what David is describing here or what the psalmist is describing here. Don't mistake this for present-day theoretical or philosophical atheists in our day. You know, like those angry guys like, like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins or the late Christopher Hitchens who, who just write these books fill, filled with vitriol about how bad religion is and, and they basically mock anyone who believes in God and say that they only believe uh, in science. That's not what's being described here. I mean, in the ancient Near East, there were no theoretical atheists. Everyone believed in some form of a God. But what's being described here is a rejection of the true God, the one and only God. Everyone served these small little gods that were representative of the different nations, but they denied that there was one God who was over 
all. All the other nations says, no, you got to have, you got to have a fertility God and you got to have a war God. You got to have a rain God and a sun God. All of these different gods for all of the different things you need. And the center was the person. It's all about me and all of these gods I've got to manipulate to accomplish my agenda. But the Hebrew God was different. The Hebrew God says, no, it's not about you. It's about him and his glory and his purpose. And he doesn't exist to serve you. No, no, no. You exist to glorify him. But the fool rejects that notion. The fool says there is no God. Now, this kind of thinking is linked to foolishness all throughout the Bible, like Proverbs chapter 1 of verse 7 which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to be wise, if you want to have understanding, it begins with how you relate to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But then it says, fools despise wisdom and destruction. Fools reject the truth that there is one true God. That's the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, famously, Paul says in Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. There's all of this evidence that there's one God who's over all, and yet they refused to believe that. They suppressed the truth, and the result, they claimed to be wise, but they became fools. You see, we all can live like this. We all can live as practical atheists from time to time. Sometimes what we say with our mouths or believe in our minds doesn't really line up with how we live our lives uh, practically. So you think, if you think that this psalm is for someone else, you need to understand that this can really can, can apply to all of us. Anytime that we think that God is not watching, anytime that we think that we're not accountable to him for how we live our lives, we are acting like a fool. So the heart of a fool is denying God's existence. Secondly, a fool is disobeying God's law, disobeying God's law. Look at uh, verse 1 again. It says, they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. They are corrupt. That's the word for spoiled milk. Has that ever happened to you before where you, you know, you get out a bowl of Lucky Charms or cornflakes or whatever you, uh, you hope to enjoy for breakfast and you pour some milk on it and then as soon as you take one bite, you can't even keep it in your mouth. It all comes back out into the bowl because the, the milk is expired. It's spoiled. And that's what the psalmist used to describe those who, who don't follow God's law, who reject his authority, and then as a result, don't follow his, his law. They become corrupt. They commit, in verse 1, abominable iniquity. They take what should be called evil, and they end up calling it good. They have all fallen away, in verse 3. 
God has laid out the path. It's a narrow road, but they have all fallen off this way or that way. And then it says, none, there is none who does good in verse 1. And then verse 3 again, there is none who does good, not even one. The philosopher and apologist Mitch Stokes says that there's, you know, there's a way to know if someone is a good accountant. There's a way to know if someone is a good doctor. There's a way to know if someone is a good bus driver. There's, there's a way to know, I mean, a, a good accountant can do math. A, a, a good accountant can follow the CRA regulations and do someone's taxes. It's easy to know if someone is a good accountant or a bad accountant. It's easy to know if someone is a good doctor or a bad doctor. It's easy to know if someone is a good bus driver. Do they run people over or, or do, they, do they help people get to where they want to get? But So we, we, can, we know sort of in a compartmentalized sense what it means to be good at this or good at that. But the question we got to ask ourselves is, what does it mean to be a good person? So we can know, you know, how to drive a bus or how to be a doctor or how to be an accountant. But what does it actually mean to be a good person? Because the, the judgment here from God is that there is no one who does good. Now, you might immediately kind of bristle towards that. I mean, no one who does good? I mean, I'm good. I'm a good person. My, my neighbor down the streets, a good person. How, how, can we, how can we say that no one does good? Isn't that overly harsh? But again, what is the standard? We have standards for bus drivers and for accountants and for doctors. What's the standard for people? When you say good, what criteria are you using? How bad do you have to be to be considered bad? Because we all got to admit we have some bad in us. And what are you using to judge whether or not someone is good? You see, if you remove God from the equation, God is the standard. His law is the path we're supposed to be walking on. But if we, if we get off the path, if we're not looking to God, then how can we decide if anyone's good or not? And again, living in our world today, because we're not looking up to God, we are looking around us to other creatures, and that's why you see so much of wisdom and philosophy in our world today being centered around the idea that we're just animals. We're just mammals. And, and, and so we should just be thinking and acting the way that animals act. But God is the standard. It says in verse 2 that he looks down from heaven. He is above us. He sees it all. We might judge that this person's a good person or that person's a bad person. But we're only seeing from this limited perspective here on earth. God looks down from above. And he sees that there is no one who does good. No one who understands. No one who seeks after God. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher and playwright who really introduced the concept of existentialism, which was sort of the beginning of postmodernism, which is what we are living in right now, said, if there is no God, everything is permissible. Because if we don't have a standard that is above us, our ability to judge one another and right from wrong just depends on really our own personal preferences. And I mean, go to an ice cream shop with a group of six people, you're going to know there's going to be a variety of 
preferences over something as small as ice cream. And yet, that is our only justification. Really, when you really boil it down to think about ethics without God, it just comes down to personal preference. That's why we see things like abominable iniquity and corruption like it's being described here. But we live in a world that says, oh, no, 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 this, right, we just follow science. The science, the science, the science. You hear that, that we've put a the in front of science now? It's like, the, it's like, this, it's, it's like we've created science as if it is some sort of like thing that's, that's above us. We, meanwhile, we are, it's just humans who are doing the scientific research. And there is no the science. You, again, you can't get scientists to agree on hardly anything. That's sort of the nature of how science is supposed to work. You're supposed to write papers and, 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 and present things and, and argue with one another. And yet we keep hearing the science, the science. But even, even science, when it's working well, has its limits. Science can tell you what would happen to a human body if you jumped off a ledge that was 10 stories high. Science can tell you what would happen to your bones and to your body if you fell to the ground from that height and that velocity. Science can tell you what would happen if you jumped off a ledge. Science can't tell you why you shouldn't jump off that ledge or why you shouldn't push your friend off that ledge. Science has its limits. And the fool says in their heart, there is no God. And then the fool begins to live in a way that's in complete disobedience to God's law. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. What pushed them over the edge when they took the fruit into their hand was when the serpent told them, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. You see, in that moment, Adam and Eve were not merely becoming lawbreakers. They were becoming lawmakers. And ever since that moment in the Garden of Eden, humankind has been on this experimental ethical improv process where we are just making up the rules as they go along. And I'm not sure if you've noticed, but in the last little while, the rate of change in terms of making up the rules is just getting faster and faster and faster. And again... Even though we live in a world that's different from the world in which this psalm was written. I mean, in the psalm, I said everyone was religious. Everyone believed in some, a God in some way, shape, or form. And yet we live in this world that says, no, we don't believe in God. We're, we're atheistic. We, we believe in science. But have you noticed how religious the worldviews are that dominate sort of the master narratives in our culture? The Bible could really be summarized in three major acts. The first one is creation. God created the world. He created the Garden of Eden. He put Adam and Eve. He gave them the law. Don't eat from this tree. There's creation. And then there's fall. Adam and Eve eat from the fruit. They rebel against God. They get kicked out of the garden. Sin and death and the curse enters into the world. Everything is broken. And then there is redemption. Christ came to save his people. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. He went back to heaven. He's coming again. There's creation, there's fall, and there is redemption. Have you noticed how there's creation, fall, and redemption in just about every quote-unquote secular, non-religious way of thinking? 
Think about how much, how much religious fervor there is right now in our world around environmentalism. And there's a narrative of creation. And that we human beings somehow, in some way, at some point, lived in this perfect symbiotic relationship with the rest of creation. Like somehow we were cuddling up to polar bears and petting snakes and everything was just, and there were no storms or typhoons or earthquakes or anything like that. And then the fall, the industrial revolution. And now the world is getting too hot. No, wait, it's getting cold. It's just climate change in general. And, and then there's redemption. What is redemption? Drive Teslas, no more plastic straws, uh, lower carbon emissions, all of these things. And, and then if we get to that point, we won't have any storms anymore. Now I'm totally oversimplifying and I don't want to sound like I'm being anti-science. All I'm trying to show is that there is a narrative. There is a, there, it's, it's, like, it's like a religion. And they have their own clergy and they have their own sacred documents. And it's a way of putting the world together. Human beings are inescapably religious. Think about the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution describes the creation, fall, and redemption narrative on a micro level for every every single human being. That every human being starts off with good desires, And they need to follow those desires. Whatever they may be, they need to be true to themselves. But in comes society at large with their rules and their social mores. And this is how you should do things. Or this is what it means to be a man. Or this is what it means to be a woman. Or this is what is appropriate to do sexuality. The fall, really the fall is Christian sexual ethics. And then what's redemption? Redemption is changing the language that we use, changing the way that we think, modifying the whole way of our understanding of how the world works. Creation, fall, redemption. So we're not only disobeying God's law, we're creating our own version of a creation, fall, and redemption story. And because these new narratives have been created, this then, we're seeing this happening in our our own world. Here's the third thing that's happening in the heart of the fool. Devouring God's people. Devouring God's people. Look at verse 4. It says, Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? God's people are being eaten up like bread. Like it's just, it, it, it just goes on without a thought. You know, you wake up in the morning, you have a cup of coffee and a bagel, you devour some Christians. You know, you, go, you, you, you commute, you do your job, take a lunch break, have a sandwich, you devour some of God's people. It, it's just, it's second nature. I mentioned Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. Nabal's main issue was that he didn't want to give David his bread. See, but we're seeing a transition in our own culture that when we have these new narratives, and I only mentioned two of them, there's a, whole, there's a, there's a social justice narrative, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of other narratives, but when we have the creation, fall, and redemption, so many of the narratives today, it's the people of God who are being identified with the fall, 
and who are being identified as the barrier to actually achieving redemption. And I've noticed this own transition in my own life, and maybe you have. I remember when I was in university, people used to reject Christianity based on moral grounds. And it used to be like this, Ted, I'm so glad that you're a Christian and that you go to church and that you're, uh, you know, you're trying to um, uh, follow, uh, follow Jesus. But you know what? I, I can't follow Jesus on moral grounds. I want to keep drinking. I want to keep sleeping around. I want to smoke up. I, I don't want to become a Christian because, Ted, the Christian lives at a higher moral standard. But now, as the narrative has changed, I, people are still rejecting Jesus, but they're re- rejecting Jesus still on moral grounds, but it's different now. Because they're, they're seeing this new narrative in terms of fall and the barrier to redemption, and they says, you know what, Ted, I, you believe in Jesus, and I reject Jesus on moral grounds, And I actually believe that you as a Christian are morally inferior to me because your beliefs mean that you have phobias, that you have bigotry, that you have hatred. And I reject all of those things. You see, the tables have totally turned. People used to look at Christians and say they're more moral than we are, so we're not going to live like them. Now our narrative has, has flipped and now people are saying, no, you're actually morally inferior It used to be, you can believe in God, but I disagree with you, and that's okay. Now people say, you believe in God, and that's morally wrong for you to believe what you believe. And that's that's a change that's happening. Like, I'm not that old. Really, I'm not. But that's something that I've, I've, I've seen, that, that's a real significant change in our culture. And again, I don't just want to zero in, this is, this, was, this is Psalm 53, this was written in the Old Testament, okay? So I don't want to sort of have this sort of limited view of only looking at our time. We need to view this in terms of world history, in terms of how God's people were treated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We need, to, we need to understand church history and the different persecution that's taking place. We need to understand this not in terms of history, but also in terms of geography. And we need to think about places like Burma and China and Eritrea, Nigeria, North Korea, Iran and India and Pakistan, where persecution is, is a, a normal part of the Christian. This is new for us. But this has been an everyday reality for the people of God in different parts of the world and in different points in history. 340 million Christians right now, according to Open Doors, which is a ministry that tracks the persecution of Christians worldwide, 340 million Christians are living with some form of, Christ, of, some form of persecution in their everyday lives. So when, when a culture, when a person denies that God exists, they then disobey God's law and make up their own law, and then as a result, they end up devouring God's people. That's what's outlined here in Psalm 53. But the psalm doesn't end there. So we move from the heart of the fool, and then, and then we conclude with the hope of God's people, the hope of God's people. Verse 5 says, There they are in great terror, 
where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. There they are. Who is the they? <laughs> when he says, there, there they are, does he mean the people of God? The people of God have terror where there is no terror? Is he saying, come on, God's people, you're afraid, but there's nothing to be afraid of. That's, that's one le really legitimate way of interpreting that verse. Another way is to think of the they as the enemies of God. And there's a number of times in the Bible story, and in, this happens with Gideon in the book of Judges when he's fighting against Midian. This happens in the days of Elisha when Syria uh, had um, the people of God surrounded in 2 Corinthians 7, where there they are, they're in great terror where there is no terror, where immediately because of the act of God, the invading army turns on one another and they end up devouring one another and running away. That might be what's being described here. There they are in great terror where there was no terror. They became afraid of themselves. Or the, the last way to, to read this is there they are in great terror where there is no terror. There they are. They're so filled with pride. They think they have nothing to be afraid of. But then God steps in. They thought there was no terror. But now they are in terror. So this would be a story like Hezekiah and Isaiah in the city of Jerusalem when Sennacherib of Assyria had the city surrounded in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 20 and then an angel of the Lord struck down the soldiers that just in an instant, just like that. There they are, they're in great terror, but they, they thought they had nothing to be afraid of. That interpretation seems to make the most sense based on what he says next. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you like Sennacherib. You put them to shame for God has rejected them. So remember verse 5 is the, is the verse that's a, little bit, that's a little bit different. And so maybe this is the, this is the add-on. People look back at David's psalm in Psalm 14 and his own experience and now they made it more of a collective psalm made it about the invasion, or the failed invasion by Sennacherib of, of Assyria. Then it says in verse 6, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The, the psalmist here reminds the people of God, not merely to look around, because if we look around and we see a lot of Nabals, if we look around and we see a world filled with fools, it's easy for us to get filled with despair and discouragement. It's even uh, easy for us to get filled with a little sense of pride that we're somehow better than all of these people around us. So we're not just supposed to look around. We're supposed to look forward and we're supposed to look up for a coming salvation. And this prayer at the end of verse 6 was answered. It, it might have been answered in terms of winning a battle at some point in history, but it was answered most clearly in the coming of Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life, who came and suffered and died on the cross, who rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. Salvation did come out of Zion in the person of Jesus. And we have reason, like it says at the end of verse 6, we have reason to rejoice and reason to be glad. 
And the Apostle Paul, as he is trying to explain to the early Christians in the city of Rome, as he's trying to unpack for them the gospel, as he's trying to explain to them what Jesus has accomplished and what that means for all of us personally, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul starts quoting a bunch of Psalms and a bunch of Old Testament passages. Psalm 5 and Psalm 140 and Psalm 10 and Psalm 56 and Isaiah 59. And he also quotes Psalm 53. Or Psalm 14, whichever one, because they're both the same at this point. And this is, what, this is the section that he quotes. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What the Apostle Paul does here is quite radical because for generations and generations, the people of God, the people of Israel, read Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 like it was an us against them kind of a psalm. They're the Gentiles. They're the other nations. We're the Jewish people. We're the chosen descendants of Abraham. They are the Nabals. We are the children of Abraham. It's us against them. But when you read Romans chapter 3, what Paul is trying to, trying to unpack is that Jewish people and Gentile people are equally lost. And it would have been shocking for a Jewish Christian to hear Psalm 14 or Psalm 53 be quoted by Paul to describe not just unbelievers in other nations, but to describe them. You see, the truth is, loved ones, we're all fools. And all of us can live as functional atheists. We live like we're not accountable to God. We live as though God is not watching. No one among us, whether we grew up as Christians or have been Christians for a long time, no one is righteous, no, not one, there are no good people who came to Hope Church this morning. There's only one good person, and his name is Jesus. That's why Paul goes on in the same chapter. He says, but now the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of Ted or the righteousness of you or the righteousness of Paul. He says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, no distinction between Jewish person or non-Jewish person. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is all because of grace. And so we read Psalm 53, through the lens of grace, we go back to verse 1 and verse 3 where it says, no one does good. And we say, that's true. That is me. I am not a good person. There is only one who did good, and that was Jesus Christ. We look at verse 2 that says that God looks down from heaven, and we marvel that as God looked down from heaven, he sent Jesus not just to look from heaven, but to come from heaven and to dwell among us. 
And then we look at verse 5 and the mention of terror. And we think about the agony, the terror that Jesus was experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's sweating drops of blood, thinking about what it would mean for him to take the blame for all of the fools, for all of the people who have disobeyed God's law, for you and for me to bear the penalty for all of our sin. When we think about the terror, when darkness came over the whole land, when he was suffering on the cross, when we think about the earth quaking at that moment, we think about the terror. And then we think about verse 6, that salvation has come out of Zion and that we ought to rejoice and be glad. Loved ones, this is, this is the beauty of knowing that we are fools and yet we have been forgiven. That we are unrighteous, but that Christ has made us righteous. That no one is good, no, not one. But there is Christ who came, who lived the perfect life, who was truly good and suffered and died in our place. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, filled with thanksgiving, wanting to rejoice and to be glad like the, like the people of God at the end of Psalm 53. Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that as we prepare to take in our symbols, bread and a cup, to remember his body and his blood, I pray, Lord God, that you would commune with us, that you would meet with us, and strengthen us, Lord, that we would better understand the grace that you have shown us, the love that you have poured out on us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.